This class is on how to win your friends to Christ. Alright? That's what this whole thing's about. So, the assignment that you were given the first week was to write on a sheet of paper or some notebook maybe that you carry around with you. Not a sheet of paper that you lose. The names of five different people who you know do not know Christ yet. Who you also know are not currently religiously attending another church. And the third qualification is they have to be within striking distance. You know, where you can reach out and touch them. Not like your grandmother 2,000 miles away in upstate New York. You can pray for your grandmother, that's fine. I don't mean that in a sarcastic way at all. You can make your list as long as you want. But in a very pragmatic way, I want you to write down on a piece of paper five names of five individuals, men and women, or all guys, or all girls. Your guy don't write all girls, okay? That you can begin praying for every day that one, they'd come to know Christ, that God would be working in their life through circumstances, through life, through His Spirit, and bringing them to Himself. Secondly, that God would give you an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And thirdly, you're going to begin to proactively setting up appointments or dinner dates or movie dates or golf dates or ice fishing dates or the list goes on and on. You follow where I'm going with this to do something one-on-one with these individuals, all right? With the express purpose of seeing them come to Evergreen and come to Christ. That's pretty clear, right? That's not like super complicated, right? That's okay. All right, now, how many of you, at least three days a week, have been praying for your list? Stand up. No, I didn't say three hours a day. I said at least three days a week. Very good. All right, now, has anybody had any ripplings in the water yet? Okay, raise your hand. Stand up, raise your hand. Well, look at this. Okay, wait, wait, wait. You're standing up. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Don't be afraid now. Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you sit down. Everyone with your hands raised up, stay up. Stay. Stay up. Got your hand raised, stay up. Don't be afraid. I'm up here with you. Okay, real quick. Paul, what happened? Yeah? Wonderful. Fantastic. Very good. Let's go over to this young lady back here. (coughs) Yeah? Wonderful. Excellent. Fantastic. Lindsay. Yeah, you. Rich. Wrong guy. Sorry. Right. Cool. And you've been praying for this kind of stuff, right? And the Lord's open indoors. It's awesome. Thank you. Yes, sir. What's your name? Yes, God. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Answer to your prayers. God answers prayers. Yes, sir, what's your name? 
Okay, Joe. Wonderful. That's awesome. It's awesome. Yes, ma'am. What's your name? Yes, Christina. Fantastic. So you've been starting to pray and God opened the door. You got some courage, huh? Excellent. Yes, Shane. There's a gentleman that, uh, that I work with that's been searching for a long time, many years, as he says. I've had him here once. Looking forward to coming back. And I think he's going to be regular attention. Awesome. That's great, Shane. Yes, sir. What's your name? My name Gary. Yes, Gary. Jason was my cousin. And did you have her on your list you were yeah. praying for? Her? Yeah. And she showed. You both did. Oh, the power of two. <laughs> Multiply it. Hallelujah. Okay. That's awesome. Yes, Electa. Um, I've been working on my sister's suit for about two months now. And actually, her 13 year old daughter is Right. So I think with the encouragement of her daughter and my bugging her all the time, she's probably going to come inside Wonderful. That's fantastic. Yes, sir. What's your name? Jay. Yes, Jay. He just sort of started talking about it, didn't he? Wow, isn't that amazing, huh? You've been praying for that, haven't you? You see? Yes, way up there. No, I can hear you. What's your name? Okay, Mike. Fantastic. Now, how many of you would like to have more experiences like that? Raise your hand. It's only a prayer away. You know what I'm saying? It's only a matter of getting serious about asking God. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. And 1 John tells us that if we ask anything according to His will, we know that we have what we ask. Now, we know that it's God's will that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Do we not know that? We know that. We'll start taking advantage of it. And asking God to open a door of opportunity so that you can share your faith. We're going to keep doing this every week. I just think it will encourage you. You know, many of these folks, I don't even know. Some of you are probably very new. This may be your first experience doing this. But God's given you courage and God will help you. And God will open doors. I got an email from someone. By the way, if you ever want to send me an email, you can write this down. I do have email. I do live in the 20, almost first century. Just so you know. My email address is zeal, Z-E-A-L, for, the number for, God, G-O-D, zeal for God. Not F-O-U-R, but zeal, puts the number for, God, at AOL.com. Okay, only run with crest. I don't write back. I hate the keyboard. I really hate the computer. But I'm, but, but, 
I will, you can share with me what you want. If you have thoughts on how to make this class better, if you just want to share a thought with me, that's great. If you would like a response, I would be glad to respond. Please, you must leave your number, your phone number or your work number, and I will call you in person. I think computers are extremely impersonal. I don't like them, but I'd gladly receive any note from anyone, and I will read it, and then I'll get back in touch with you if you'd like a response. Okay? So, just another avenue to throw stuff at me, you know. Hey, do it. Don't do it anonymously either, because I'll track it down somehow. Okay? Anyway, I got an email from a young lady last week in this class. She said, Mark, I just had to send this to you. She said, this is unbelievable. I came to the class, never done this before. I started praying, praying, praying. I got so many opportunities, I don't know what to do with all of them. God answers prayer. Tonight we're going to talk about our attitudes towards lost people. I've got a number of things that I want to talk to you about tonight. The reason we're going to talk a little bit about attitudes is because all action is preceded by an attitude. The lack of action is often the result of the wrong attitude, a bad attitude, or no attitude at all. All right? So let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for what you're doing. I'm just so blessed, Lord, to see people praying for their friends, seeing people wanting to share Christ with others. I ask you tonight, Lord, take us to another step. I ask you tonight, Lord, that you'd help us to understand how you feel about the world and how you want us to feel about the world and what you want us to do towards the world. Thank you, Lord, for these men and women. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, let me read. I, I have a number of things here I want to read to you tonight. Common obstacles to effective evangelism. Fear of rejection and failure. In a recent survey of evangelical Christians, the vast majority of Christians said that I have a friend who doesn't know Christ. I've known them for a long time. They were asked that question. When they were asked, would they be willing to share their faith with their friend if it meant... Well, excuse me, let me back up. First of all, they said they didn't have a... They had friend at least one who did not know the Lord, that they cared about very much. Secondly, they were asked, do you believe in a literal hell? And the vast majority of them said, yes, I believe in a literal hell. Thirdly, they were asked, if your friend does not know Christ, do you believe your friend will go to hell? The vast majority of evangelical Christians said, yes, I believe that will happen. Then they were asked this question. Would you be willing to share the gospel with your friend if you knew that you might lose the friendship? The vast majority of them said, no, I'd let them go to hell. Now, I'm, I'm going to try not to rant and rave tonight. I'm really not. But we are a schizophrenic, stinking bunch of people. As far as I'm saying, as far as Christianity in general. That is tragic. That is pathetic. That is so opposite of our Lord. The Lord was willing to lose everything to save you and I. We've got to have a reality check in our own life. We need to ask ourselves this question. Am I willing to put my friendship aside and out of love convey to my friend their need of Jesus Christ and risk them never speaking to me again? I don't know. You know, I've asked myself, how do Christians go to bed at night knowing that they have a friend, 
Then, and by the way, they've probably had many opportunities that God has opened a door that they could have walked through, and they didn't walk through it because they were afraid their friend would laugh at them or belittle them or wouldn't want to be their friend anymore, and they'd rather let them go to hell. How do people sleep at night? I just don't know. I think it's because we're just so out of touch with Jesus himself. See? Probably nothing will convey to you quicker, quicker where your relationship with God really is at than your own attitude towards lost people. Because it is lost people that beats on the heart of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God cares about lost people. You'll find out real fast how close you and God really are if your heart's moved by the plight of lost people. Um, let me just share a couple of other things with you that I thought was really interesting. Oh, where was it? The Gospel according to the evangelizers. That's people who are out sharing their faith. Four out of five people who are out trying to share their faith believe the Bible teaches that God helps those that help themselves. They believe that's in the Bible. Four out of five. Just so you know, it's not. In fact, that statement is the antithesis of the Gospel. God does not help anyone who helps themselves. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the desperate. And the whole gospel message is the fact that man is helpless to help himself. His good deeds reek before God, and he desperately needs a Savior. Half of them say Satan is not real, only a symbol of evil. Half of them say the Holy Spirit is not real, only a symbol of God's presence and power. Two out of five say a good person can earn salvation. Two out of five say they are still trying to figure out their life's purpose. These are the people out doing the evangelizing. One third say all people experience the same outcome after death. One third say the Bible's not totally accurate in all it teaches. One third say some sins cannot be forgiven even by God. One-third say Jesus Christ did not have a physical resurrection. One-quarter say Jesus sinned. And one-quarter say all faiths teach the same lessons and principles. There's a problem, isn't there? A problem. Breaks my heart. I want to read something to you else tonight. i got a lot of, a lot of little information here tonight I want to pass on to you. Christian coalition should dabble less in politics and more in hearts. This is written not by me, by the way, although it might sound like it. It's written by Cal Thomas. The Christian Coalition, at its convention last weekend in Atlanta, honored its retiring executive director, Ralph Reed. Ralph did an excellent job articulating moral and ethical issues most politicians are embarrassed to talk about, except in generalities. His retirement provides an opportunity to consider whether two decades, that's 20 years, of political activity by evangelical Christians has been worth it. When contemporary Christian political activism caught fire in the late 70s, some said that a sleeping giant was stirring and that it was a majority. But one-third of this majority voted for President Clinton in November. 
A majority was said to oppose abortion and, despite the phenomenal growth of crisis pregnancy centers that have helped many women and saved many babies, more than a million abortions are performed every year anyway. When Christian activists emerged from their churches in a political arena, they targeted pornography, offensive television, drugs, the gay rights movement, and crumbling families. Pornography is worse than ever. Television continues to stink. Drugs remain a problem. The gay rights agenda, despite a few setbacks, advances, and the divorce rate remains about the same. The Christian Coalition takes credit for the $500 per child tax credit in the budget bill, heretofore unrevealed as a Christian doctrine. I would be the last person to suggest that believers embrace apathy. As citizens, they have a duty to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But conservative evangelicals run the risk of deprecating their ultimate value, that of speaking for and building a kingdom not of this world. There is precedent for what happens to the church's primary witness when it becomes overly entangled in the cares of this world. Look at the liberal churches which long ago gave up preaching salvation, at least through Jesus Christ, and now mainly focus on political themes. Research George Barna wanted to know what non-Christians think of Christians. Their first two thoughts he learned were that Christians attend a lot of meetings and they oppose many things. How far they have strayed from their leader's admonition to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and visit those in prison. What would have a greater impact on the ailing culture the Christian coalition seeks to influence? The attempt to organize a minority constituency to influence a majority who do not share their views is not working. Suppose the coalition became known for transforming people's lives instead of trying to transform Congress, the White House, and the Supreme Court. Might it be argued that their example would be so compelling that millions of Americans would want to follow it? Conservative Christians claim that by force of numbers alone, which they do not have, they can redeem a culture gone sour. It won't happen through the ballot box, no matter who is elected. It can happen only through the heart. C.S. Lewis put it bluntly, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Writing in Forbes magazine, University of Maryland professor Robert Nelson says that baby boomers know instinctively that real values are homegrown, derived from families, churches, neighborhoods, and communities. They are not imposed from above. One of the great failings of the progressives rose from their addiction to the use of governmental power to try to impose a uniform set of national policies and beliefs. By contrast, there is a strong libertarian streak in the baby boomer generation. Nelson says it would be tougher to clean up the mess than it is to create it. But the Christian coalition won't do it from the top down. It might succeed if it started at the bottom and worked up. Well said, amen, a billion times amen. This is a plague in the Christian church in America. 
We have forgotten our simple mandate. Do you know what the Lord Jesus said? You know what he said to Pilate? And I quote, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. My kingdom is not of this world. We are to strive for the souls of men and women, not getting votes in Congress. And if we were more busy caring for our neighbor, pouring out in a compassionate nature the life of Christ to those around us, we would see revival. We would see a change in this country now. It might cost our lives. It might cause the evil one and those who follow him to be that much more angry at us. But a soul is worth it, isn't it? At least Jesus thought so. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, I'd like you to turn there this evening. Matthew 9, verse 35. I want to emphasize this. Cal Thomas did. But I do not believe apathy is the solution. And I believe you should go out and vote responsibly. And I believe because we have a democracy and we have the freedom to elect our officials, that we ought to elect as many godly individuals as we can. So that we might have a well-ordered society for all men and women to benefit. But government is not the solution for the world's problems. The solution for the world's problems is Christians full of compassion who are reaching out to the world they live in, bringing the message of Christ through acts of kindness, through deeds of service, through the heroic efforts of self-sacrifice and laying down their lives as their Lord did. Now, I can't get this message, you know, to every church in the cities, and there are many who are committed to this principle. I'm responsible before God for the church that He's given us, and you're part of that. And I make no apologies for deliberately trying to mold you by force of the Spirit. And to root out the wrong paradigms that are in your mind and your heart, and to begin to plant in your heart and mind a paradigm that I believe is biblical and scriptural and what this church is trying to do in reaching the Twin Cities for Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, we see in verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is so plentiful. It's so big. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. Now I want you to notice something about this. First of all, Jesus, not one time, ever required anyone to believe in him for eternal life before he healed them. You may not realize that. All he required was that they believed he could do it. But he didn't require that they accept him as their Lord and Savior. I don't know if you realize that. Many of the people that Jesus healed 
weren't saved. They didn't, they didn't become born again because Jesus healed them. He just went about doing good, healing whoever, irrespective of their beliefs. Some of them did get saved. Some of them, were their lives were transformed. <coughs> Others, you remember? Remember the lepers that he healed? I don't know. If I remember right, there was ten. And one or two returned to even say thanks. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, I know why you've come. Because I feed you. They didn't have these altruistic motives. I just am so hungry for truth, precious Lord. I got an empty belly, Lord, and I notice you're giving some free food. Can I have some? The next thing to notice about the Lord was that he looked on the multitudes. He was indiscriminate. Didn't matter who was in the multitude. Didn't matter if it was Pharisee, saint, or sinner. Didn't matter if they were a harlot. Didn't matter if they were tax collector. Didn't matter if they were gay, did not matter if they were an adulterer, did not matter if they were a murderer. He looked out on the multitudes and he felt compassion for all of them. Because all of them were helpless and harassed against the power of sin, the power of Satan, and they had no one to lead them and care for them. People are like sheep. I'll tell you something, in the 22 years that I've been working with people, in the 11 years I've been pastoring, I've learned one thing about people. They're very much like sheep. They get startled easy, they get afraid easy, they get confused easy, they get emotional easy, they doubt pretty easy. They're like little lambs. And if you know anything about lambs, they need tremendous guidance. They're real jittery, they scare easy. I used to work with sheep a little bit. And they'll follow all the rest. If one of them goes over a ledge, they'll just all keep going if you scare them. They need guidance. And Jesus here <clears throat> gives us insight into human nature. The entire world is like lambs. People are like sheep. They need guidance. They need direction. They need encouragement. They need hope. <clears throat> they need leadership. I want to read you... Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 15, 11. <clears throat> I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can write it down, Luke 15, 11. But it's the story of the prodigal son. <clears throat> and once again, we see the story of Jesus and his love for the lost rebel. Here's this son. This son did not deserve to return for compassion. This son was an ungrateful, pathetic, wicked, rebellious punk. That's what he was. Demanding his own way. And he went off and he spent all his money on wild parties and whores. <clears throat> and then his money was gone. He didn't have anywhere to turn. So he tried to hire himself out. Eventually he got a job taking care of pigs, which to a Jew was anathema. That was as low as you possibly, possibly get. Because pigs are unclean <clears throat> and kosher to Jews. So he's cleaning. He's so hungry, he's eating the slop that they give to the pigs. Finally, one day, in all his pain, he comes to his senses. He says, I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm just telling him I'm sorry. I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me be a hired hand. And you know the story. The son didn't even hardly get a word out. The father sees him off at a distance, coming, just making a few steps. This is the way our Lord is. He's so loving. You just make a few steps to him, and he comes running to embrace you. And the father came and embraced him. 
and bought the brought not you know he didn't say well son you're right you don't deserve to be my son but you know go in the bunkhouse for a couple weeks to see what your attitude's like there's some servants clothing out there some stinking overalls put them on better than what you got that's how often how we feel isn't it about our own life we just feel so unworthy that's not the way God is at all he immediately clothed him with the very best garments that he had he took off his own ring the best that he had and gave it to the son and then he said now go slaughter the calf bring everybody in we're going to have a big party my son's come back God is a God of compassion God cares about people in uh, Luke chapter 15 1 through 7 we see that um, the story of the lost sheep, that Jesus left the 99 <coughs> and went after the one. And I'd like you to go there for a minute because I want to show you something in Luke chapter 15. <coughs> Verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Can I, can I share with you a deep, dark, not a, it's not a dark, but it's a deep, unspoken dream of mine. I dream about this. I dream, and I beg, that tax collectors and sinners would surround me and listen to me. That is my greatest dream. That is my fantasy. Is that all the people of the earth would come like they came to Solomon and they would come to this church and not just with me but with each and every pastor that's up here the lost, the lame, the broken would come of this city and they would gather around and they would listen that's what this whole church is created for that's what the sound system was purchased for that's what these seats are there for every weekend that's why there's so much work that goes on to put on that service on the weekend so you can bring the lame, the broken, the downtrodden, the hopeless, the hurting and bring them in and they can hear and they can gather around and they can be fed spiritual food and if they have an interest, they can get more and if they have an interest, they can embrace the Savior. I dream about that. That's the only thing in my entire life that matters to me is that more people come to Christ and then those that come to Him, of course, secondarily, that they grow up. And I have given myself to those two things exclusively to see them come to Him and to see them build up in Him and discover all about Him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We have people muttering about us. Now at Evergreen, they're mamby-pamby Christians. You know, all they do is focus on the lost. All they do is care about the lost. Thank you, so did Jesus. I take that as a compliment. Oh, you don't get spiritual food there. Come over here, get spiritual food. Fine. You go eat until the food's coming out your ears, your mouth, and your nostrils. Give me the lost and the broken and the lame. And I promise you, we'll see them come to the Lord. And you know what else we'll do? We'll feed them. We'll feed them. We'll feed them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you is a hundred sheep and loses one, does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more 
rejoicing, I underline the word more, in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Now, I, I don't know if I'm reading my Bible correctly here, but let's just think about this for a minute, all right? I know my Bible tells me that God loves you and me. He loves me. I don't worry about that. God loves me, right? You all know that? God loves you. But let's talk a little bit here about God's joy, about heaven. If I'm not mistaken, the Bible says right now that if one person outside this auditorium, somewhere in the street, came to Christ, there would be more joy in heaven than over all of us in here who don't need the Lord but we're studying the Bible. Am I reading this right or not? I don't know. If you don't think so, you can email me. Now, do I think God's excited about our praise? Yes. Do I think God's excited about our obedience? Yes. Unquestionably so. But the point is, somehow, Christians just don't get it through their hard heart, not their thick skull. That the purpose for which Jesus died, the best gift God could have given, it broke His heart because He loves the world so much is that He cares for the lost. Lost people matter most to God. He's already got you. Remember what the... Do you remember what the prodigal son? Do you remember what the, the son that stayed at home said to the dad? You, you never threw a party for me. You never treated me special. I've been here. I've been obeying. And the father lovingly turns to the son like God says, Wait, Mark, Mark, wait a minute. You already saved. You've got all my inheritance. You're going to heaven. You've got everything. All I had to do was ask. But let's rejoice because your son, brother who is lost is now found. Don't you get that these parables are to us? They're to us. The church has developed the same kinds of attitudes. Oh, well, well, you're always so concerned about the new person, Mark. I see you on Sunday, you're saying hi to that person, hi to that person. What if I want ten minutes? Call me on the phone, you got it. But if you want me on the weekend, and you know the Lord, and you've been coming for a while, I don't mean any offense, but you won't get much of my time. This is a fishing pool. Let me explain to you Evergreen. Evergreen is your own pond. And every week we throw as many trout in it as possible so you can fish for them and catch them. Do you understand that? It's the simplest concept in the world. We are stocking this pond with unsaved fish so you and I can fish for them. But often on Sunday, you know what you see? I'm over here with the ten people I know. I'm in small group with them anyway, but it doesn't matter. We get to spend three hours a week together anyway, but it doesn't matter. I'm over here. So how are you doing? Oh, great. We're with our comfort zone. What about all of the people that you've never seen their face before? How much does it take, you know, to walk up to someone and say, excuse me, I don't think I've ever met you. What's your name? What's well, nice to meet you, Alexa. And is this your husband? Well, it's nice to meet you. Congratulations. That's awesome. How did you find out about Evergreen? Is that hard? Is that rocket science? No. All it is is focus. I am a fanatic about focus. Understand what every meeting is for. This meeting, this meeting is for the Christians. This meeting is for those of you who know the Lord to build you up. But even at this meeting, I'm always trying to meet new people because there's new people who just... I met people tonight. It was their first or second time to this meeting. That's pretty courageous. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you automatically feel comfortable and you automatically feel welcome. We forget what that's like sometimes, don't we? 
We get so used to the family. We forget what it's like to be the new person on the block, the new kid on the block. Boy, I remember. I went to seven different schools growing up. I had a choice in my life. I either become very outgoing or become super introverted. That Now, now some people, when my, some of my brothers, how it affected them is they became very introverted. And maybe it's just, you know, partly I'd be the first one to admit it's partly my temperament. I just started making friends. My mother told, tells me, she said, Mark, when you were three years old, you used to stand by the pastor at church and shake everybody's hand. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I don't expect everybody to be like me, but we can all be like, try to be like the Lord. That's the goal. Or she said, you know, Mark, when he, we moved, we moved three times when we were in California. We lived near L.A. and Burbank, then Sunland, then Camarillo. She said, as soon as we get moved in, you'd go walk up and down the block and you'd tell me, well, I'm going to look for a friend, Mom. You know, now, even I have my limits. I, I'm more melancholy and introverted than people realize, but I want to be like the Lord. I want to be like the Lord. I don't want to be like Mark. I want to be like the Lord. We've got to remember the purpose for every single event and meeting. What is our life about? See? When this burn on your brain, when it's burn on your heart, then you, you stay focused. You don't forget. I want you to know I love the saints. I care very much about taking care of God's saved sheep. And I've given myself to that, to praying for you, to preparing, to trying to teach you everything I know, as well as the other pastors. And I mean it when I say, if you ever want to talk, you pick up the phone. I don't have an unlisted number. But when I'm at a service, I'm always just trying to, as much as I can, meet new people and make them feel welcome. Because I realize that they usually look up to the persons on the stage and I have the opportunity to influence them in a positive way. That's all I'm trying to do. Believe me, I, I, never it's in my heart to neglect you. I care about you. You know, as pastors, we care about you very much. But you have to remember what this weekend, every weekend is basically a crusade. It's basically a crusade. That's what the whole thing's about on the weekends. All right? Luke chapter 9, verse 51. You can go there for just a moment. And I didn't bring my Berkeley Bible, but I'll quote it from you out of the Berkeley Bible. This is verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead and went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Jesus turned and rebuked them. He went on to another village. If you read in your side margin, if you have one, I'll read from mine. Here's what it says. This is what uh, the earliest manuscripts say. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what kind of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, I am a sinful man, so I confess to you that there have been many times that I have said, Oh God, kill him! And I'll be the first one to admit it. I ain't going to lie to you. I'm not God. I'm just trying to become like His Son. I can relate to these disciples real easy. There have been situations I've been in, or there are groups of people, 
or groups of individuals that I think, you know, plan to be a lot better off without them. And notice the disciples. They had that same kind of indignantness. And the Lord said, guys, you don't, you're missing something. I didn't come to kill people. I came to save them. I didn't come to destroy their lives. I came to save them. You don't realize what spirit you're of right now. Right now you're not of my spirit. You're of the evil one. You have the flesh. Jesus' attitude towards lost people was one of compassion, deep concern, and love. I have a little book here. I wish they had a bunch of them. I don't. But I'll tell you the name of it and you can get it if you'd like. It's called Loving Those We'd Rather Hate. I love this, I love this kind of titles. You know, just get to the point. Alright? By Joseph Stoll. Joseph Stoll is the president of Moody Bible Institute. I want to read a couple things to you out of here. If I could just decide which ones. Maybe I just stand and read the whole book. No, I don't have time. Compassion defined. What is true biblical compassion? By the way, did anyone get the tape carrying the essence of our gospel? <clears throat> anyone get that one? Raise your hand. I'm proud of you, Rich. Raise your hand real high. Did you hear it yet? Huh? Did you like it, Rich? Very good, wasn't it? If I do say so myself, the Lord gets the credit, it'll help. It was helpful, wasn't it? I want to encourage all of you to get it. I don't have nearly enough time to develop all the themes that I want to in here. Carrying the essence of our gospel. Alright? It was a tape that a long, long time ago to try to set the pace for what this church was about. And I'd like you to get it. Um, you can get it, pick it up at the table library or order it. Several, what is true biblical compassion? Several words are used in Scripture to translate our English word compassion. <clears throat> Their meanings in both Hebrew and Greek are highly instructive. There are two basic words in the Old Testament. One of them which means to bear, to become responsible for, to spare someone from trouble. Whereas the first word deals mainly with our actions, the second is more attitudinal. It means to be soft and gentle. The word is sometimes translated womb and also means to be wide in terms of encompassing others and their needs. In the New Testament, the leading word for compassion means that emotion aroused by contact with affliction. It is the Greek word used to translate the Old Testament concept of God's loyal, unfailing covenant love. The stress in this particular word is on the action that flows out of our being as we are touched by another's affliction. In fact, the difference between sympathy and biblical compassion is that biblical compassion, true compassion, always leads to action. Compassion is not measured by how we feel, but rather by what I do in response to how I feel. We might define compassion as our commitment to activate ourselves as channels of God's love, mercy, and grace in tender, thoughtful, understanding acts of help, deliverance, forgiveness, and restoration towards those in need. Compassion really is God's love, mercy, and grace looking for a place to get busy. Compassion asks, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? Many years ago, my wife and I, we lived in this, this trailer park. And, um, you know, the Bible says the Proverbs 31 woman that she extends her hand to the poor. We lived in a, a very, 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 very poor trailer court. 
you know, it didn't have the amenities like a pool and play area and wash and dryer room and all that. It had a lot of boarded up trailers and the police were up there a lot. And, and uh, it had a lot of broken lives up there, actually. There was one family who lived um, three trailers down from us. <clears throat> the father and mother, the father was slightly retarded. And um, I'm not even sure how they could carry on a family life, even. And uh, the mother was very neglectful of her children. She had a boy and a girl. The little boy was eventually taken by the police from the house. The little girl, her name was Rachel. And uh, Rachel was, you know, blonde and about, uh, she was about the same age, a little younger than my oldest daughter. And uh, at that time, my kids were three and four or five. We lived there until they were about five or six. And Rachel, no one really took care of her, to be honest. And it would be about 25 degrees out, and Rachel would come walking on the sidewalk in her swimming suit and no shoes. And uh, my wife always reached out to try to help Rachel and her family. And she'd take over clothes or goodies or, uh, you know, not, not many people in the trailer court would have anything to do with little Rachel. But my wife would invite her in and... and uh, she would kind of befriend her mother and she'd play with the kids. And as a result, we all got infected by lice. Because Rachel had lice. So we had to de-louse the kid's head and we had to de-louse the trailer. And, and a week later, she was back in her house playing again. You know, we're not, we're not perfect people. There have been people who actually God probably wanted us to pay attention to. We didn't. But you know, men and women, if we're not willing to lay our lives on the line, what does the Lord mean to us? I remember some years ago at Evergreen, there was this is when we were smaller, and there was a young lady that came to Evergreen and, and called up one day and said, can I visit? And So she came over to our home where my office is, with my wife and I in the living room and visited and told us her story, and it was a very, very, very tragic story. One of 13 children. That's not so tragic, except they were raised in a very alcoholic family, and the father was extremely alcoholic, and, and uh, her, she had an older brother who had molested her a number of times. She ended up leaving home at 16, and, you know, things were so bad that when she'd bring her girlfriends over to just to, to hang out of the house, her father would try to French kiss her girlfriends. I mean, it was just an obnoxious, filthy, vile situation. And uh, she was raised Roman Catholic. She had an awful lot of guilt. Um, at least she had some knowledge of God. But she had an awful lot of guilt. She left home when she was 16, and she got pregnant, married a drug addict and an alcoholic. And after the second child was born and he drop-kicked the baby across the room and threatened to kill her with a knife, she thought maybe she should leave. So she left, moved to the Twin Cities from Washington, ended up living in her car for months, and someone finally... An older lady in the neighborhood discovered her, put her in her basement. She got a job, took her, found someone to take care of her children, and the individual taking care of her two boys molested both of them. And it affected one of them so badly that um, they just became totally uncontrollable. The daycare centers, and so she lost her job because she had to miss work so often to go get them because they were so out of control. Anyway, so she comes to Evergreen. I had no idea she was even a parent. I didn't even know she was a mother. So she came over and she shared the story with us. And and we just, you know, 
I wish I could do this with every person. I'm, I'm only one person. I'm just sharing with you what I believe compassion is. So we just kind of took her under our wing, kind of adopted her, and she didn't know the Lord at the time, and she was about uh, probably 28 or 29 at that time. I knew that God had something wonderful planned for her, that one day she'd realize the Lord could forgive her. And I used to have a group at that in those days called Renew, and she started to come to that. She was going to Adult Children's of Alcoholics. She quit going to that and started coming to Renew. And Renew slowly but surely transformed her life. One of the second tapes that we listened to in the Renew groups called Breaking Chains of the Past, and it's about forgiving those who have wronged you. <clears throat> we got to that tape, and I'll never forget, she came to me afterwards, she said, Mark, she said, I want this so bad, but she said, I, I just don't see how I can ever forgive my brother for what he'd done to me. I hate him. Well, in the meantime, uh, she began pondering that, and a few weeks later... She came to another meeting that I was doing at the college campus. And that night, I don't know why I was talking about immorality and how that no matter how immoral we've been, God can make you as clean as a virgin again. You can be brand new. Brand new. She told me later, she said, I went home that night and she said, it just all came out. I wept for three solid hours. I just sat in my room and I cried and I cried and I cried. And I invited Christ into my life. So, the next week at Renew, she was just like, you know, like jittery, like electric almost. And I said, well, I said, uh, Sally, you must have something you want to share with the group tonight. She goes, oh, you're not going to believe this? You're not going to believe this? This is so incredible. She said, you know, on breaking chains of the past? I said, yeah. She said, well, and she shared with the whole group then what her brother had done. She said, I haven't spoken to him in ten years. I hate him. A few weeks ago, I, I came to Christ. I listened to this tape again and I realized God wanted me to do something about this. So I started writing him a letter and I realized I can't write him a letter. I'm going to call him. He said, I didn't want to call him at home because his wife doesn't know any of this and I didn't want to embarrass him. So I called him at work. His secretary put me through and as soon as he heard my voice, he started to cry. And she said, so I started to tell him what I was telling him and he broke off and in his tears he said, Sally... He said, I became a Christian three years ago. And every single day for three years, I have cried out to God that somehow you'd find it in your heart to forgive me for what I'd done to you. They had this most extraordinary union on the phone and she forgave him. And three years later, she got engaged to a wonderful guy here. I had the privilege of marrying them. And that brother walked her down the aisle and gave her away. So don't ever tell me the compassion of God does not work because I've seen him work in real life. And I'll never forget, after she came to Christ, she used to tell me, you know, well, what happened? She told me, Mark, I gave up my two children for adoption because, you know, I just, I have a terrible mom. I can't be a, I can't be a good mom. Why? Well, I, I didn't sit there that day and tell her, oh, sure you can. Oh, by the power of God, you could become a great mom. I didn't tell her any of that because she wouldn't have believed me. She didn't even know the Lord. She came to know the Lord, and as she started going to renew, and, he, and, and healing started happening in her life, she said, you know, I think I could be a mom again. And I said, listen, Sally, you bet you could be a mom. God gave you those children for a reason. She said, well, I'd like to try to get them back. I said, well, I'll go to court with you and speak up for you, and I'll try to help you get them back. So I'll never forget going to court. It's the first time I'd ever done that before. And went to court and spoke up, and she got her boys back. The next five years are the most painful years of her life. A lot of sin had taken place in those boys' lives, a lot of rebellion. I'll never forget the day that she had him in the apartment and 
They were making so much noise. One of them got swing at the other. He put a hole in one of the doors of the bathroom. She didn't have the money to replace it. So we helped her. So she wouldn't get kicked out of her apartment. Those boys grew up, went on their way. and God's working in their life. Their, their lives are pretty broken. And when you try to work with a kid once he's 13 and they have that kind of life, it's pretty challenging to do. But you know, she has no regrets. And today she has a new baby girl. And God's just doing amazing things in her life. Now, I want to make something really clear. Lest some of you take me wrong. I do not share that story, story to glorify me. It's really nothing. Anybody could do those things. Anybody. If we were just willing to get involved. If we were just willing to take the time to get involved. There's a couple right up here, Ann and Shane. I can tell my wife knows them better than I do, but they're dear friends of ours. And they have gone out of their way in their neighborhood. The neighborhood that they live in, in their town, a lot of people in the neighborhood actually have spread lies about them, rumors about them because of their faith in Christ. They have continued to reach out to their neighbors in their neighborhood. And slowly but surely, God's starting to work. By ta- Anne's reached out to take care of some of the neighbor kids. And it's been at times a thankless job, hasn't it, Ann? It's been a difficult situation, but God is slowly but surely working in their neighborhood. All it takes is to see God wants me to care about lost people. And the only reason lost people should ever listen to us anyway is because we established some credibility. And how do we establish some credibility? By showing compassion to the needs of other people. I was visiting some years ago I've had this happen more than once. Probably the people that the church has the hardest time with is gay men. Because the church, you know, has in in their in their wanting to take a stand against homosexuality, in many ways they've gone overboard and extreme so that the homosexual feels like you just there's no place for me even in the church. There's no welcome for me in Christianity because, you know, of course, Christians, it's the worst possible sin in the world, which it's not. Sin is sin. And in fact, if you did nothing wrong your whole life but lied one time, did you know what? You'll go to hell. God will send you to hell. Now, if you, I'll get some emails about that. I'm confident of that. You need to understand that the Bible says if you've kept all the law but stumbled in one point of the law, God holds you responsible for all the law. You've broken it all. And God in His mercy has put everyone under sin so that all can come to Him only one way, through Jesus Christ. So I was visiting with a young, uh, a young man one time. And he said, Mark, he said, you know, my friends, I hear comments, you know, from other guys in the church, their feelings about Amen. I'm afraid to even tell my friends what some of my struggles are. He said, I don't want to be this way. I believe that being homosexual is a choice. I don't want these kinds of feelings. But I grew up, and when when this person went in and told me the environment they grew up in, and by the way, many men, not all, but many gay men who are gay today, one of the primary reasons why is because when they were approximately 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, in their puberty years, in their formative years, were molested by another man. 
Now, you may not be able to relate to that, but I want to tell you something. It sends unbelievable mixed messages when you are developing. And so later on in life, many of them do not know what they are. And many of them come from very, very severely dysfunctional families. There's others. You're just caught up in the lifestyle of lust and perversion. Many are not. Whatever the situation is, all people deserve your compassion, your willingness to reach out, show them love, and then share the love of Christ with them. Now, does that mean we can bend God's rules? No. Does that mean, for example, and I'm going to close with this, one time many years ago, there was a a gay man coming to Evergreen, and I had gotten to know him pretty well. And every time I saw him, Every time. Always gave him a hug. Every time. Slowly but surely, he started to warm up to the Lord and and um, he started to get involved. And In fact, he's the one who gave me the book The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, which has been a blessing to my life unlike any other book. He started growing and growing. And One day, though, I noticed over time he wasn't coming around much. He called me on the phone and said, we need to go out to breakfast. I said, Okay. So we went out to breakfast, and he said, Well, Mark, he said, I guess, to be honest, I just really need to know right from you, what do you think the Bible teaches about homosexuality? I said, uh, Well, let me ask you a question. He said, All right. I said, Now, you know me. You know I'm, I'm married, and I'm pastor of this church. He goes, That's right. I said, What would you think if I decided, Look, I need a little more uh, sexual activity, so I had an affair. What would you think of that? Oh, that's wrong. And I looked him back in the eye and said, that's what the Bible thinks of homosexuality. He never came back. Would I change anything I've done? Did? Absolutely no. I must speak the truth in love. I must say the truth. But that does not mean that I wouldn't do everything I could have done to reach out, to love, to befriend, to talk, to go to lunch. This is a human being. Christ died for that human being. I could go on and on all night. I'm going to get into some more practical things in the next two. Do we have two times left or three? We have two, right? Two times. The next two times we're going to get into real practical things that you can do to influence lost people, okay? So let's pray, and please keep praying for your five friends. I mean that. Pray over Thanksgiving. And then the, the last two times, I'm going to give you some practical ideas that you can do with your friends, okay? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you tonight for your love and mercy. I want to thank you, Lord, for your kindness. I want to thank you for your compassion to me. No one here, Lord, in this room knows me like I know me and like you know me. And I know, as I look back over my life, if people knew the real ugly part of me, people wouldn't want to be compassionate to me. Not based on the virtue of my life. I just thank you, Lord, that you're compassionate because it's your nature. You're compassionate because it's the way you are. You're compassionate because you want to be. I ask you, Heavenly Father, that you would strengthen our hearts and our resolve and our commitment to reach a lost world for Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.